This is an unusual Sunday in many respects, not only because it's the last um, day of summer and things are a little more relaxed, but because I decided to try what in many congregations, Unitarian Universalist congregations, is, is an annual tradition, the, the question box Sunday here for the first time. And I don't know if former ministers tried this before, and I'm guessing not. Um, because in many congregations that I've been a part of, it's an annual summer tradition for the minister to say, send me questions, whatever questions you have, and I'll do my best to answer them. And usually those questions are, you know, fairly simple questions, questions about Unitarian Universalist history, questions about, you know, my own personal theology or my story, questions about vision for the congregation, fairly simple questions even even those that are a little more complex are not generally, you know, lifetime quests. Well, one of the reasons why I love this fellowship is that I got three questions in response to my, my call in the newsletter and over email for questions from the congregation. And uh, those of you who've studied systematic theology um, might know that there are a, lot, there are a set of what, what's called the big questions of theology, the questions that, that anyone who's seeking to create a theology, a, a, a world view based in religious belief, um, needs to answer. And those questions include things like who or what, if anything, is in charge of the universe? So, you know, is there a God? If there is a God, what kind of God is there? If there's not a God, what's running the universe? Big questions. Questions like, what happens when we die? Um, big questions. Um, how do we know what we know is one of the big questions, um, and one that more than theologians grapple with. Uh, philosophers grapple with that question. Um, people in all sorts of academic uh, disciplines grapple with that question. So I got three questions from you all, and those questions were, why do people seem almost universally to have a belief in some sort of divine spirit, a supernatural being, or deities in general? Why do people seem universally to have a belief in some sort of existence of the spirit after the death of the body? And how do we as Unitarian Universalists define worship? Really simple questions that, you know, I can probably bang out in the next 15 minutes, right? Probably not. Um, so I thought I'd give you a few thoughts on this question and then um, in an unusual move open up um, our worship today for discussion from you. And that might include other questions that you have. And um, from time to time we, we ask our congregation to share reflections with one another. Things that have welled up in us as, as a result of the sermon or the service. And I'd like today's discussion to be a little more than that. I'm actually inviting us to engage with one another. Um, in those reflection times, I have uh, made it a practice not to respond when people share their reflections so that your reflection might stand um, as whole in this um, worshiping community, even if what you reflect on is a question. Um, I'll respond today, so if you have questions, maybe we can engage in some dialogue. But I don't pretend that... At least two of the big questions of theology are going to be answered in the next 15 minutes. And I don't pretend that we'll have 
um, a universally acceptable definition of worship in the next 15 minutes either. But let me, um, let me dive into the three questions that I was actually given. Um, so the first one was, why do people seem almost universally to have a belief in some sort of divine spirit, a supernatural being, or deities in general? And I think that my first response to that question um, had to do with the fact that life as we know it includes grappling with mystery. Um, there are things that we just don't know, that we will not know, no matter how hard we try, that wonder and curiosity are a natural part of the human existence, um, perhaps genetically bred into us so that we might evolve as a species. Um, but I think that just describing belief in God as convenient to explain the things that we don't know um, is an easy answer. Um, I think that it's um, not a very satisfying answer, at least to me. Some people are okay with that. If you're okay with that, you can tune me out for the next five minutes. Um, but I actually think that it's an easy and not particularly satisfying answer. Um, the word spirit um, shares the Latin roots with inspiration. Inspiration both um, as we know it um, as a source of creative energy and also as the drawing in of air into our lungs. Um, in Hebrew, the word for spirit and the word for breath, ruach, are the same word, spirit and breath. And so um, I think that many cultures over time have developed a sense that, that there's something in the world around us, in the air around us, um, in being around us, that, um, that we participate in, that we draw into us, that fuels our, our being. Um, I think that it is a natural sense that we have as humans that we as human beings are not all that there is to the universe. And I think that that's a good thing. Um, I don't think that that's a bad thing that we think that we believe that, that we are not all that there is to the universe. Um, I think that some cultures have devised a system of supernatural beings to describe the things that don't seem to fit in with their understanding of the natural world. For me, I don't actually believe in anything supernatural as part of my belief. I use the word God, but to me, God is part and parcel of the natural world around us. I think it says something um, that spirit and breath are so closely tied to one another. It says something that um, two famous Unitarians that we look to in history were both involved in figuring out um, how life is sustained through air. Uh, Michael Servetus, um, for those of you who don't know this story, um, was a famous Unitarian martyr in Europe. He was burdened at the stake by John Calvin for being um, a heretic. Michael Servetus made his living as a doctor. Uh, and the thing that he's famous for in uh, doctor circles is not his publishing On the Errors of the Trinity, which got him killed. The thing that he's famous for is discovering the pulmonary circulation of the blood. 
um, for discovering how the air that we breathe in nourishes the blood that's pumping through our veins. Um, That's what he's famous for in medical circles. Um, And then Joseph Priestley, who I know I've talked about here before, is a famous English Unitarian who uh, was driven out of England for being a Unitarian and came to the United States. Um, But what he's famous for, what every eighth grade science student learns about Joseph Priestley because of is that he discovered oxygen. Um, He discovered that if you um, light a flame in a closed uh, jar, it depletes something in the air that then does not allow life to exist in that jar. Um, Unless you put a plant in that jar for a little while and the plant would rejuvenate that air. He discovered oxygen um, as, as the very being, the ground of what makes us alive, the thing that is most necessary for all uh, life as we know it, um, well, most life as we know it on this earth. There are a couple bacteria down in the bottom of the ocean that would disagree with that, uh, but just a few. Um, so I think that there's something to be said that ancient people who didn't know all this science who didn't know what lungs were for, who didn't know what blood was for, who didn't know how plants uh, restored oxygen in the air, um, came up with this thought that the thing that which we breathe in uh, has something in it that is the essence of life. Um, This spirit that we breathe in is the essence of life. I think that there's something to be said that so many ancient cultures looked at the world around us and saw power, saw forces at work that were not part of them. And so they gave them names. Um, But I don't think that they all said, oh, well, this is some supernatural being. This is some person up in the clouds or at the top of Mount Olympus, Um, though some cultures obviously did that. Um, A story that I've thought a lot about this week, given the events in the world that I described earlier, um, is a story that, that dates back to my college days. Um, when I was at Cornell University, just up the road in Ithaca, um, one of the most popular courses uh, at Cornell at that time was a, a Native American history course. Um, it was one of the very few courses that those of us who were in the agriculture school could take and satisfy our history requirements. Um, with an agriculture school course. So it became very popular, but it was also popular because the professor who taught it, Bob Venables, who we all knew as Dr. Bob, and is still known as Dr. Bob, even in his retirement, was um, quite an entertaining and animated figure. He was very passionate about what he taught. And uh, he would get very much into um, what he taught and... uh, There were 600 people in this class, and so the way he took attendance was by saying, okay, the the seat that you're in um, is going to be your seat for the rest of the semester, and we're just going to see which seats are empty, and that's how we're going to take attendance. So um, my best friend and I dutifully sat in the second row of this very large auditorium right by the overhead projector where he stood, and he came to us at the beginning of class, and he said, um you might want to move back a few rows. Uh, And we said, oh, no, we're sitting here. He's like, okay. Um, I've had people who who, uh, were deaf 
uh, come to me after sitting in the second row and wanting to move back um, be, <laughs> because the vibrations for my teaching affected them so much, he would really get into um, what he was teaching. And one day, um, he was teaching us about Mayan religion, ancient Mayan religion, the religion of ancient Mexico, uh, and of a particular god uh, that the Mayan people um, worshipped and feared. Um, it was a god that they understood had enormous power in their lives, uh, power that was um, wind and rain and floods and destruction that could be wreaked upon them at any moment um, with no notice. It was power that they, they lived in fear of. They also understood that the power that that God had was necessary, was a necessary part of their life because of where they lived, um, that the floods that that God wreaked upon them were needed for the agriculture that they had. And so the destruction, the destructive power of this God was necessary for their creative powers to bloom forth. They understood that and still they trembled at the name of this God. Um, and, and at this point, Dr. Bob paused and, and he got really quiet and, and he asked us if we knew what the name of this God was. And of course, none of us did because no one who was in this class had ever studied ancient Mayan religion. And he, uh, at the very top of his lungs, and he had very large lungs, so lots of spirit in Dr. Bob, um, screamed over and over again until he was red in the face, the name of that God, which was Hurakam. Um, it's, it's the word that we get the word hurricane from. The, the Hurakam was the name of that Mayan god, the name that struck fear into the Mayan people. You would say that, that word and they would, they would start sweating, they would start shaking at the name Hurakan. And he paused, screaming this. I mean, he was red, we were all shaking. Uh, I mean, he made us feel this fear as if a hurricane was bearing down on Ithaca, New York, at that very moment, and paused and wondered how we've let Western society give these great destructive storms cute human names. Um, we call them Katrina. I mean, I have friends named Katrina. <laughs> They're nice people, my friends named Katrina. They're ashamed of the name that they have now. Um, even though they're such nice people named Katrina, we call them Fran and, and Gustav. Um, as if they're like the guy next door, Gustav. Oh, Gustav is coming. Invite him in for tea. Um, and if you said Gustav to someone on the Gulf Coast today, you would probably get the same reaction that the Mayans got when they heard the name Huracan. Um, and rightly so. There is something to be feared in the destructive power of nature. Um, there's something to be prepared for. The Mayans knew that they had to build their buildings to withstand the forces or to be easily rebuilt after being destroyed by the forces of Huracan. Um, but they knew that at some point that Huracan, at least the power 
that Horacon had was the power of the natural world. It was power of rain. I mean, rain was a part of their lives every day. It was the power of wind. Wind was a part of their lives every day. And so even if they understood that this was a special force, um, they knew that the, the elements of a hurricane were the elements of nature. Um, I think there's something to be said in understanding that there is power beyond us in this world. Um, be that the power of wind to destroy or to create. Um, you know, lots of people have spent lots of time talking about the power of wind to create electricity um, in our world. Um, the wind has power to create as much as it has power to destroy. Be that the power of rain, um, of water, um, to destroy or to create. Um, or be that um, the power of spirit um, moving in this world. Those of us I know um, who are uh, earth-centered in their beliefs, be they uh, pagan people, neo-pagan people who try to reclaim the ancient beliefs of Europe, um, Native American people who uh, understand themselves as believing in the ancient teachings of the Americas, um, or whatever strain of earth-centered belief that they have, um, don't think of these powers as people sitting in a cloud. Um, they don't think of these powers as deities that um, we have conversations with, but as forces of nature that we are, exist in relationship with. We exist in relationship with those forces, with the forces of wind, with the forces of rain, um, with the powers in our universe that we uh, know exist because we experience them every day in the world. Um, we exist in relationship with those forces. And lots of cultures understand that we exist in relationship with those forces. Lots of cultures still choose to call those forces God or goddess or gods, or whatever they want to call them, um, I don't think we should limit our imagination to what that word means based on a few cultures who've decided that there's some you know, vindictive guy sitting up in the clouds um, who gets mad at us every now and then um, for whatever humans decide he, and it's usually a he if it's a vindictive guy sitting up in the clouds gets mad at us for... So that's my take on why people seem to have a belief in some form of divine spirit. Um, I'll wait till our discussion to hear what your sense of that is. Death. Death. We, we, we've solved God now. We're going to move on to death. Um, so I was also asked in, in belief in some form of existence of the spirit after the death of the body, um, and again, what happens when we die is one of the big questions of theology. Every theological system that has ever been created had to come up with an answer to the question, what happens when we die? They've had to come up with an answer to the question, what happens when we die? Because we all die. Um, it, it is a universal fact of all of creation that at some point, every living being dies. So... Because it is one, and some might argue that taxes are the other, right? Um, the universal condition of all living beings 
um, if you're seeking to understand how the universe works in whatever system you're in, you have to at some point ask the question, what happens when we die? Um, even if you don't necessarily care what happens when we die, you have to at some point ans- answer that question. And so cultures have come up with answers, um, many of which have some sort of belief in um, a spirit that lives on after us, um, many of which, however, don't. So I don't necessarily think it's an accurate statement to say that people seem universally to have some sort of uh, belief in the existence of spirit um, after the death of the body. Many Buddhists, for example, um, believe not in the life of the spirit after the death, but rather the passing of our energy to the universe. And um, scientists would not argue with that. Um, The energy that's bound up in our body does not disappear when that which we know as life ends. Um, The matter that's part of our body does not disappear when that which we know as life ends. Um, And so that energy and that matter need to go somewhere. Um, They need to go somewhere. And even if you believe they go into the soil and the bacteria and the air and the trees, they've gone somewhere um, in in this world. And they don't ever cease to exist. The matter that is us, the energy that is us, the energy and the matter that is every single one of you in this room, at one point was the matter and energy bound in something you ate or something you breathed in or something that your mother or father ate or breathed in. It's just, or their mother and father or their mother and father. Um, It's just a fact of being. The matter and energy that is you was not spontaneously created to be you and will not spontaneously cease to exist when what is called your life ceases to exist. (laughs) We get mood lighting here at the fellowship, apparently. Okay, okay, I'll move on. Um, And so I think that um, people talk about a belief in some sort of existence of the spirit after the death of the body because it's very clear that the matter and the energy that is us live on. Um, The things that we do in our lives live on. Um, The things that we have done have affected the world around us. The conversations that we've had have affected the synapses in other people's brains. Um, And so everything that we do and everything that we are leaves a trail of effect in its wake. And so... Um, I think that people believe in existence after death because it's a fact now. Um, We can talk about now what kind of existence one has. Is there an existence that has some knowledge to it? Is there an existence in a heaven or a hell? Is there existence in, uh, you know, any of the ways that some of the religions of the world have portrayed that existence, and the truth of the matter is we don't know. 
and we're not going to know until we're dead, uh, which hopefully will not happen for a really long time, um, but will happen to every one of us here, I promise you. Um, and once it happens to us, we're not going to be able to come back and share it with other people. So the rest of us, after each of us is dead, will not know until we're dead. Um, so we can talk about it, but uh, it does become so much wondering and uh, academic uh, discussion at some point. Um, there are some religions whose belief in the afterlife informs how they live in the world. I don't think that that's a particularly healthy way of being. Um, we can debate that too. But um, many religions of the world um, don't spend a lot of time talking about what happens when we die. Um, I take my cues here from Judaism, uh, in fact, where you know there might be things that are officially part of the belief, but most Jewish communities don't spend a lot of time talking about it. Um, it's not part of the everyday practice of the religion um, because the focus in Jewish community is how we live in this world now, in covenant with, with God as we understand God, in covenant with one another, and how we uh, live out our promises made to God and to one another in the world. Um, it's not about what happens when we die. It's sort of immaterial, even if there are, you know, there, there's an official belief somewhere in what happens when we die that rabbis argue about on occasion, on very rare occasion, and sometimes change and disagree with each other on. But the life of most people who are Jewish um, is not a life of paying a whole lot of attention to the afterlife. Um, and those of you who are or have been Jewish, I see nodding in agreement, so I'm glad I got that one right. And I take my cue, I take my cue from that. Um, a lot of, a lot of, though not most or many even Christian people, um, do spend a lot of time talking about that. And I think it's one of the ways that particular branches of Christianity have gone a little off track in our society. Um, in focusing on what happens when we're dead, we ignore the thing that we actually have control over, the thing that we know we have power to shape. Um, we ignore the world around us. Um, so I think it's a mistake to go there too often. But that's, that's my thoughts on death. Thoughts on death. Check. Um, and then question three is about worship. So I'm going to... Uh, okay. See, you know, the spirit. Worship, we're getting there. Um, the, again, with worship, I go back to the, the roots of that word. And the roots of the word worship are the same um, roots as the word worth. Um, worth, you know, to place value on. So um, the way I like to define worship is coming together to celebrate that which is of worth in our lives. Um, I think that um, just like in my reflections on God, um, human beings are pulled to understand that there is greater meaning in our lives than what we are able to fashion on our own uh, as individuals. Um, I think we are pulled together in community to celebrate what that which is of worth to us, to worship together, because it helps put our lives in context. Um, it helps us grow and become better people. 
Um, it helps us understand how what we do shapes the world around us. Um, but it puts, it puts our lives in a context of meaning. Um, and that's why I believe we come together as worship, uh, as a community to worship. Uh, that's what I believe worship is. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Unitarian minister, transcendentalist, philosopher, um, great American thinker, uh, once told the senior class at Harvard Divinity School that the good preacher passes along his life, and they were all hymns at the time that Ralph Waldo Emerson was talking, his life passed through the fire of thought. Um, that was what Ralph Waldo Emerson believed that a preacher gave to their congregation. His life passed through the fire of thought. It wasn't about reflecting on a dogma or about you know some ancient scripture and its meaning thousands of years ago. It was about how we live in the world as thoughtful, engaged people. And that's what Emerson believed. Um, worship was centered on. And that the preacher's obligation was to show the congregation how he and later she um, thought about those things and lived those things in their own life as, as a way to inspire the congregation, as a way to ask the congregation to engage in that level of thought and reflection about their own life and the context in which they live. So um, that's, I, I, I like to hold Emerson's words um, close to me when I'm creating a sermon, when I'm creating worship um, for this community or whatever community I'm creating worship for. And I hope that you'll think about that too. Um, how does being here with this community um, shape how you live, um, put how you live in a context in a greater context that gives it more meaning uh, when you leave these these walls. Um, because that's what I believe worship at its core does. It puts our life in a context that gives it meaning so that we're not, when we're not together, we have something to connect to. Um, and Mary, and if you're willing, um, Having solved all of the great questions of theology that you've posed to me, I'm now going to open up the floor for discussion. And if you have more questions, I'm happy to reflect on them briefly. But um, if you'd like to add something, I'm not going to pretend that what I have to say about these questions is the final answer um, or anything more than my thinking over the last month since you emailed me these questions about these great questions of theology. So 